Hi, everybody. Welcome to the Hallmarkies podcast. And we're really excited today. We have a special bonus episode for you where we are talking about the 100 passions uh, list that AFI, the American Film Institute did back in 2002. And there's a special reason I'll tell you um, why we're doing that. But I'm film critic Rachel Wagner, and we have a special guest with us. Uh, we have Zita Short here. She has a podcast, 300 Passions podcast, that uh, is very related to this AFI 100 Passions list. So she's the perfect guest to have on. Zita, thanks so much for coming on the podcast. Oh, no, thank you for having me. I've been a fan from afar for a long time. So this is exciting. Oh, great. Uh, well, since it's your first time coming on the podcast, why don't you introduce yourself to our audience? Well, I'm a New Zealand-based film critic, and my podcast focuses on the nominees for this list. So it's a lot of slightly more obscure classics from the 30s and 40s and 50s and so on. Mm -hmm. And yeah, we try to go through them. You have a lot of ones on the list that have been almost completely forgotten and then every now and then you get a my man godfrey or his girl friday Mm -hmm. and so that's quite interesting to go through and wonder why the betty grebel vehicles are not as popular as the deborah carr classics for Mm -hmm. example yeah yeah it's a really weird list this 100 passions uh, list uh we'll talk about what their criteria were and 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 more coming up but the reason why i wanted to uh focus on this list was i was trying to think of something that we could offer the patrons of our podcast that would be wouldn't be too much work for me but would be uh fun and appealing and i had the idea that i could watch all of the movies on this list and do a blog review basically that's just for the patrons and so we just started it i'm not sure when this is gonna gonna air we'll have a couple episodes um, uh, by the time it airs but um i'm starting at the bottom of the list which is number 100 is jerry Maguire. so i got that up i have pillow talk that's gonna be coming this week um and uh and so it's just something kind of fun and of the 100 movies on the list uh, how many would you say that you think you've seen oh i've seen all of them oh you've seen all of them wow i've seen 53 of them so about half so Mm. it's going to be a fun project in that sense (laughs) because i'm going to get to see a lot of you know classic movies and i'm you know looking forward to to some of those new ones um that i haven't seen so this list aired in 2002 so there's a lot of films that i think would be on there now that just hadn't you know that are post 2002 um and uh there's and i'll talk about some of those but um let's talk about the criteria that they had (laughs) so they claimed the first thing was it had to be a feature-length fiction film film must be in narrative format typically more than 60 minutes long so no documentaries i guess mm-hmm. yeah uh, and that that was so that one's a pretty basic requirement and then this next one i think it's interesting because they have a Ameri- it has to be an american film 
film must be in English, in the English language with the with significant creative and or financial production elements from the United States. And I guess that makes sense. It's an American Film Institute, but, mm-hmm. but it's a little bit of a shame because there's a lot of really good foreign uh, passionate I, romantic films with that is that I sort of don't mind it when they stipulate it's American film that's what we're limiting ourselves to because I feel like when they open it up and you end up with say three foreign films on the list it sends the message that oh American cinema is so superior Mm -hmm. to what they're making in these other countries and I feel like when given the opportunity to choose foreign films they don't make the best choices. So mm-hmm. I'm always just sort of glad when they acknowledge, no, we are sort of dilettantes. We're only really into American cinema and we limit ourselves to that, even though they don't really, because you have Dr. Zhivago on this list and I see that as a British film, but not right. according to them. That's a good point. <laughs> well, and... I, it's just a shame because you can't have the umbrellas of Chabot, which I think is one of the great romances. Oh, brief movies. encounter. Yeah, that's another one. Um, so it, that it's too bad. It's too bad. <coughs> I have a little cough today. Um, okay, it has to be a love story, regardless of genre. A romantic bond between two or more characters whose actions or intentions provide the heart of the film's story. So this one, I'm a little bit confused on some of these. Like, I don't really understand why Hunchback of Notre Dame is in here. It's, I feel like that's yes, barely a romance. It's not. And there are so many examples, at least in terms of the nominees, of films where I would say romantic love does not play a crucial role in advancing mm-hmm. thought. It's not one of the film's chief thematic concerns. Yeah. Having the fact that something like carnal knowledge, which I would argue is about toxic masculinity and mm-hmm. men who make their female partners feel awful, the idea that that is a love story in any way is right. sort of disturbing. <laughs> Well, and, and also the wit movie Witness. I mean, it's been a while since I saw it, but I don't remember that being much of a romance. I think there's Isn't a better about the boy? for it. it. Yes, it's primarily about a murder investigation and Harrison Ford has to protect this child. So I would agree. I don't think of it primarily as that movie where Harrison Ford and Kelly McGillis get together. That yeah. feels like a, a subplot within yeah. the larger economy. Of the yeah. Would, would, are there other ones that you think were odd choices? Well, I think the big shocking one, I would say, is A Streetcar Named Josiah, where yeah. that is meant to be a film about an attractive, charismatic man using his position as a a charming, powerful figure within that family to abuse both his pregnant wife and his mentally disturbed sister-in-law. 
And yeah. they decided, nope, it's super romantic when you <laughs> punch your pregnant wife and violently rape a woman who's on the verge of having yeah. a nervous breakdown. So that is one of those choices where you think, oh, Jesus. Yeah, they, it's, it, I mean, it is a passionate... I guess. Yes. The characters are very passionate, but they, if, if one of the requirements is that it be about a romantic bond between two or more characters... I think it's a stretch. <laughs> yes, I, I would tend to agree. And I also think you have, I found this very funny. On the Wikipedia page, at least, they name the characters who are meant to be in love. And for Dark Victory, where Betty Davis is sort of at the centre of a love triangle, but it's very clear that Humphrey Bogart's character does not have a chance with her. And she dismisses him about 30 minutes into the film from what I remember. And George Brandt is her primary love interest. And the fact that they listed the co-respondents as Betty Davis and Humphrey Bogart made me think, oh, have they ever seen this film? Yeah, I mean, I have never heard of it. I never heard of Dark Victory. That's one that I definitely haven't seen. I mean, another movie that I think is about a toxic relationship, I I don't really understand seclusion, is Funny Girl. I don't think it's a very good movie, first of all, but I just think, like, it's not romantic. Yeah. I would tend to agree. I think it's very odd. I suppose you could say that Fanny is extremely infatuated with Nikki Arnstein mm-hmm. at certain points in the film. But I think from the very beginning, as the audience, we are meant to know that he's a con man who is using her. You don't think, oh God, Omar Sharif is so dreamy in that movie. Right, right. We'd like to take a second from this episode of the podcast to celebrate our sponsor of this episode, and that is the Hallmarkies Patreon. Do you love Hallmarkies podcast? Do you want an inside scoop into what happens on the podcast? Do you want early access to episodes and loads of cool perks? Now is the time to become a patron of Hallmarkies Podcast. By becoming a patron, you get to access our patron Facebook group. You can request episodes or even be a guest on the podcast. And most importantly, any patron can join our monthly movie watch-alongs with stars like Paul Campbell. Natalie Hall, and more. It's as low as $2 a month to join in and become a special part of the Hallmarkies family. Please consider, and we will love you forever. Go to patreon.com slash Hallmarkies. That's patreon.com slash Hallmarkies. Two Christmas movies on the list, uh, Shop Around the Corner and uh, and The Apartment, if you count those. Uh, and, uh, and I feel like Christmas movies are such a, a part of the romantic scene. So important, like something like Christmas in Connecticut. I, I think that one belongs, uh, holiday affair. I think you could definitely have on here are more romances than a lot of these other picks. Mm. No, it is interesting. I do think you see this sort of recurring problem throughout the list, where you have these movies that are generally acknowledged as masterpieces that might have a romantic element, but aren't generally thought of as 
incredibly romantic films. Mm -hmm. So something like Vertigo, for example. Yeah, that's a weird one. I, I feel like that is about a relationship and it's about romantic love in a way. But I feel like when you think of Vertigo, you don't think of the narrative first. Personally, I've always seen it as a, a more interesting film when you consider it on the level of being Alfred Hitchcock's meditation on what it means to be a filmmaker mm-hmm. and a voyeur. And I don't necessarily watch it and think, gosh, I really hope James Stewart's character manages to work things out right. and stops. Yeah, <laughs> I agree. Woman. <laughs> <laughs> um, another one that I had never heard of is Random Harvest. What's that about? Uh-huh. So that was a huge hit at the time of its release. And I think the problem that it faces is that its star, Gria Garson, was arguably the biggest female movie star alive during World War II. But a lot of her films were made purely to be sold to an audience from that era. Mm -hmm. And she typically played perfect, ladylike women in her films and after world war ii it does seem like people kind of went back to wanting a barbara stanwick or claudette colbert a lot of these actresses who were allowed to have more of a sense of humor on screen who didn't face as much pressure to be prim and proper and so a lot of these garson vehicles seem a little bit dull by modern standards and especially Mm -hmm. in terms of what we expect out of actresses from this era where you've got your Catherine Hepburns or your Carol Lombards who are just having a lot of fun on screen and you look towards Garson and she seems very doer she's typically playing housewife types or mothers who are purely defined in relation to their children and Random Harvest definitely tried to sell a lot of those family values. And I would argue that it doesn't play as well. Today, I was sort of surprised that it placed so highly on the mm. list. Yeah, and I was also a little surprised that we had Manhattan as high as, <laughs> as it is. I mean, it's it's... I don't know, it's more social commentary. I mean, and the romance is just kind of skeevy. It's not very... Oh, well, gosh, yes. His relationship with the young girl is very yeah. creepy. And I even think the the point of his relationship with the Diane Keaton character is that they're sort of not in love and she's still pining for his marriage friend. And mm-hmm. it's these two very sad, lonely people... On his side, he is a very disturbed man doing something disgusting to a very young girl. And I think you're meant to realize, oh, these people are sort of going through the motions. They want to be in love, but they are not suited to one another. And I think at the end of the film, when she goes back to the marriage friend, Uh you sort of realize, oh, all along, this was kind of just them trying to pass the time during this period in their lives in which they don't have anybody to love. Yeah. Another one I was not familiar with is Way Down East. 
Oh, wonderful. Yeah. An absolute masterpiece. Oh, really? Uh, obviously, Griffith, a very controversial filmmaker for good reason. I think it's absolutely fair to interrogate the themes in his work and to be critical mm-hmm. of the stains that he has left on the history of American cinema. But I would argue that that is a hugely important film in terms of the development of the melodrama. You have this extraordinary sequence towards the end in which Lillian Gish ends up uh, trapped on these ice flows and almost dies. And it's just sublime. I think Mm. it does everything that you need a dramatic sequence like that to do. She's one of the great actresses of all time. Mm -hmm. And she's just... This is 1920. It's a silent film. It is, yes. And it has one of those convoluted, overcooked plots from that era. But it's really fantastic in terms of the mise-en-scene, in terms of the way it's put together. Mm-hmm. It's just such a richly detailed film. And I think individual sequences definitely hold up better than the plot itself, which I would argue could be seen as very disturbingly sort of slot shamey by modern standards oh, and yeah. surprisingly a D.W. Griffith film does not hold up in terms of how it presents yeah, society. Be interesting. Uh, I would not have My Fair Lady as high. I mean, I, I love My Fair Lady. I think it's, I mean, I love the music and I'm a sucker for a musical, but I think the least compelling part of it is the romance. Yes, I would tend to agree with you. And I think that's always a tension that, that, that is there with adaptations of Pygmalion, where a lot of people argue that you're stripping the film of or the story of its power by implying that, oh, there's this romantic tension there and everything will eventually work itself out yeah. instead of the story serving as a condemnation of the actions of Henry Higgins and the members of his social class. And personally, I've always felt that completely stripping away that tension does take something away from the story because I do think in order for the story to work, you have to understand why he is charming and why there is a certain appeal to members of the upper class, even though they are ultimately Uh these (laughs) sorry classist monsters at times and I think that the 1938 version of Pygmalion works better in that regard in part because Wendy Hader and Leslie Howard are both young and beautiful and just seem like two people who should get together at least Mm -hmm. physically whereas I think in the in My Fair Lady it's so difficult to believe that Audrey Hepburn, possibly the most beautiful human being to have ever lived, right, would right. give Rex Harrison a second glance. And I also just think he is a deeply unpleasant screen figure. And you could argue that works for the sequences in which Henry is treating her crudely and putting her down. Mm-hmm. But when you are meant to turn around and believe that she is charmed by him and enamored of him, I do not think it works. Mm. Yeah, I would have 
I wish I wish that the ending of the movie had uh, her going off to work in this in the flower shop, which was the original idea, and her not going with Freddie either. Um, I think that uh, that would have been a really great way to end them end the story, but uh, but alas, it is not to be. Uh, what what would you say is your favorite of all of the nominees uh, of all of them on the list? Ooh, so it's a bit of a conflict for me between Gone with the Wind and Out of Africa. Sorry, not Out of Africa. It happened one night, although I do oh, okay. love Out of Africa too. But for me, It Happened One Night is one of the most perfect films ever made. But I know with yeah, art, it's really good. completely subjective. No piece of art is ever going to be perfect mm-hmm. but just technically the way it's put together is so precise it's this perfectly engineered romantic comedy and I think that is why it has served as the template for even so many of the other films on the list yeah. you think oh in this DNA in this film's DNA it happened one night plays a very significant role mm-hmm. and I think it's just incredible that all these years later it still seems so modern it hasn't really aged at all and one of the charms of watching old movies is that sometimes it does feel like this window into another world and while it takes a bit of time to acclimate to the customs of the day and the the styles of speech that they use you eventually get into it but it happened one night I feel like say you colorized it and made things look slightly more modern you could put it into a movie theater today and people would not think that it was dated at all and yet unfortunately Gone with the Wind deeply problematic film in so many ways has left this horrible legacy in a lot of ways I do not want to minimize or downplay that and so I'm always at conflict with myself over the fact that I specifically loved that book as a young girl and Mm -hmm. it really got me into reading and I would still argue that (sighs) Margaret Mitchell's prose is impressive and I do think that Scarlett O'Hara is a fantastic character. And yet, you also have all of this baggage that comes with it. And while I think that it would be difficult to argue that the film isn't significant as a milestone in Hollywood filmmaking, I just feel more comfortable, for obvious reasons, picking It Happened One Night. Yeah. I mean... I can understand why Gone with the Wind is on the list. It is a very passionate film. I don't really understand why it's number two. That seems high to me. Uh, it's, uh, I mean, it's another movie about a toxic relationship. Yes. However, I would argue uh, without condoning all of the things that Rhett does, I mm. do think that the movie is better at acknowledging the fact that it's meant to be this toxic, twisted dynamic mm-hmm. in some of the other films on the list, yeah. where it's clear that the source material is meant to be about this relationship that is codependent and not healthy for the two people involved in it. And then the film adaptation 
awkwardly tries to sand off some of those rough edges and convinces you that, oh, no, everything's fine here. And these people who <laughs> live inside never go out and spend all of their time yelling at one another. They're in love. Mm-hmm. Is On Golden Pond, I thought that was more of a family movie. Yes, I would tend to agree with you. I suppose you could say that the emotional bond between Henry Fonda and Catherine Hepburn is very important, but it always felt to me as though they are negotiating their dynamic within a family context instead of it being a purely romantic relationship where they're they're bringing so many practical concerns into it. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I haven't seen it, but I just was surprised to see it on this on the list uh and uh, i i i would not have gone with i would have gone with jane Eyre over wuthering heights personally if you were going to pick one of the bronte <laughs> but the uh the um jane Eyre with orson welles and john oh. Fontaine, i think is better movie than um this wuthering heights no i'm always very upset by Wuthering Heights in a way because I just feel like they missed the whole point of the source material and really Mm -hmm. missed an opportunity to focus on the impact that again the toxic dynamic between Cathy and Heathcliff Mm -hmm. has on their descendants which I always felt was a big part of the message of that book and this sense that family trauma passes down through the generations and in a sense never really disappears from their kids lives yeah and yet the film again it seems especially confused about how to handle the character of Kathy where it seems like you're meant to like her purely because she's the most beautiful woman on right. screen yeah and yeah. yet she spends all of her time being classist and unpleasant yeah she's really a vindictive character i mean i I think part of it is i just like jane Eyre way better than wuthering heights but uh, i just think that that jane Eyre with orson uh wells is so good it's so romantic so passionate Mm. yes uh, and wuthering heights it does have the famous deep focus cinematography maybe that put it out ahead Mm. but it does seem like an odd choice in retrospect. Yeah. And there's only one Jane Austen on this list, The Sense of Sensibility. Mm-hmm. Uh, I guess like Pride and Prejudice is technically a television series, the 1995 version with Colin Firth. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it seems weird to have a list of 100 passions and not have Pride and Prejudice on here to me, a version of it. Mm-hmm. I was know there... that the, the 1940 ahead. version was nominated. So I recently discussed that for my podcast. Oh. And I just think the problem is that it has largely faded from the public memory. Uh-huh. And another Laurence Olivier vehicle. So he was popular, obviously, at the time. Yeah. So where did you find the 300 list? nominated uh, you can find it online i had to look it up and then there was a big 
spreadsheet that I found. I believe it was sort of in the the recesses of the AFI website. So I can't quite find a oh, direct link to it, but I think okay. if you search for it, it comes up. It's the sixth entry. Uh-huh. A couple, two other movies that I think should be on here. Uh, a Room with a View, I guess. Is, is that, that British? Yes. Oh, that's why. Room with a View and Howard's End. I love both of those movies so much. But yeah, I guess they're British. Yeah. Um, Another one that I love is While You Were Sleeping. I think the script in that movie is so good. Uh, If you're looking for kind of judging a movie for what it's trying to be and does it successfully be that, then I think that While You Were Sleeping is completely successful. Uh, They create such a compelling character. Sandra Bullock is so likable and uh, it's really a movie about loneliness and uh, and dealing with lone uh, dealing with being lonely uh and i i love her and um bill pullman in that movie so much uh, it's i would put it on my list for sure hmm. maybe it's suffered from the recency bias where I think they were afraid mm. to put too many 90s films on the list having said that there were quite a few you get something like Shakespeare in Love which had recently been yeah a big deal and I don't think would be on the list today yeah like it's a fun movie but one of the greats mm. yeah. probably not uh i let's see other ones that i i I was surprised a little bit i think rocky should be on this list that was nominated but Mm. i think it does come with the stigma of being a dude movie in a sense (laughs) where i definitely think for a lot of that film's fan base i don't think they would ever acknowledge that the love story was one of the more entertaining parts of the film for them and perhaps the extension of the franchise also doesn't help where I think the Mm. original really centers that love story and then you have all of these other Rocky movies that are all about ooh he's going to fight someone from the Soviet Union yeah well it's a very passionate movie so Mm. uh I, I could have definitely seen it on here. We'd like to take a second and thank our sponsor of the podcast. From Jenny Martz, the USA Today bestselling author of award-winning books filled with love, laughter, and always a happily ever after, comes a sweet, funny, and heartfelt Western romance that will have you swooning. Jenny Martz's Cowboy Ever After is a fish-out-of-water, grumpy, sunshine romance that follows a shy author from the city, her jaded cowboy host, and their journey to trust and love again over a week together on a ranch in Montana. The perfect romance for your summer reading list, Publishers Weekly calls Cowboy Ever After a sweet tale that will have readers eager to return to this picture-perfect Montana town. Available now on Amazon and in stores at Barnes & Noble and select bookstores. For more information about Cowboy Ever After and other titles by Jenny Martz, visit www.jennymartz.com. That's www.jennymartz.com. Or use the affiliate link in the description section below. Love, Return to Me. That's one of my favorites. Um, I think that's kind of a hidden gem. I love Clueless. I would have loved to have seen that on this list. Oh, yeah. I think it's so funny. And 
And they have Sleepless in Seattle and When Harry Met Sally. So they have two Nora Ephron films. <laughs> uh, but I love You've Got Mail. I think it's so good. And I mean, they have the shop around the corner. So they kind of went with the original as opposed to the remake, which I understand. But I just love Nora's script in that movie. I think it's so good. Oh, she's fantastic. A real, oh, I hate this term, but a very important auteur within yeah. the romantic comedy genre. And the thing about The Shop Around the Corner, I love it. I think it's great. But there's some parts of it that are a little weird, I think. Like the the whole suicide part and the fact it's in Budapest. Ooh, I love it. I, I think, think that, yeah. I don't know. Like I just, I actually prefer You've Got Mail, uh, even though I really enjoy Shop Around the Corner. And I can understand why they picked that one, but I just, I, I love You've, you've Got Mail. Yeah. <laughs> um, I also love, and this is another underrated one. Uh, I love uh, Calamity Jane, Doris Day, uh, Howard oh. Keel. It's underrated. I think it's really good. Good songs, good romance. Uh, that's a hidden gem, I think, that I would have liked to have seen on here. Uh, and then I have a bunch of movies that if they were going to do the list today that I think would have made the list, I'll just... I'll just go through them. Uh, Juno, I think, would make my list. That's 2007. Um, Slumdog Millionaire would make my list. That's 2008. Uh, Tangled, uh, that's 2010. And they do have two animated films, which I appreciate because a lot of times these kind of lists, animation gets skipped. Mm. Mm -hmm. They have Lady and the Tramp and they have Beauty and the Beast. Yes. Which I, I appreciate that. Uh, some other ones uh, I love the movie in America I think it's very underrated uh, it's a really passionate beautiful uh, movie um, it, that came out in 2002 so it would have been just barely that year so that's probably why uh, plus it's just underrated um, I love Sing Street that's 2016 that's one of my favorites uh, Walk the Line 2005 500 Days of Summer 2009 Napoleon Dynamite, 2004. Wally, 2008. Up, 2009. I love the love story of Up. It's so beautiful. Uh, Brooklyn, uh, I would say, for 2015. Uh, do you have anything like that, that that has come out since 2002 that you... Well, I assume Brokeback Mountain oh, yeah. would definitely be on that in terms of being this cultural sensation, this historically significant film. So I definitely think that would make it onto the list. Mm. But I'm generally hesitant when it comes to suggesting that more recent movies would be on the list, just because I think with these lists in particular, there is this focus on historical importance. And I do think mm-hmm. they want these movies that have a long-lasting legacy. And it's more respectable to pick something from the 40s or the 50s than the 2010s, for example. Mm-hmm. And so I do think you would get a couple of 2000s and 2010s films that would filter onto the list. But I definitely think that you would still have this skew yeah. towards cinema from maybe the 80s is sort of the cutoff point for where I think the classics mm-hmm. on the list lie. Yeah, there probably would be some LGBTQ representation on the list I would hope, now. Yes. 
like I think you could probably have bird, the bird cage on that mm, one. that's a, a fun romance uh and oh the notebook I think that would mm, probably make yeah it. in yeah. terms of iconic romances uh-huh. from the 21st century yeah that is up there I think you'd also have probably if they were doing the list now I bet you that that Moonlight and uh, La La Land would get included. Mm. <laughs> like they wouldn't yeah, be on no, my. No, no. I mean, I like watch. both those movies, but they wouldn't be on my list. But I just, I think that would probably be included now. Mm. You know, but um, uh, some of my favorites on this list uh, is my, my absolute favorite uh, is uh, It's a Wonderful Life. And that they have here at um, number eight. I mean, it's a Christmas movie. So of course I'm going to enjoy that. And I guess there's three Christmas movies. It's Wonderful Life, The Apartment, and uh, Shop Around the Corner. I mean, mm-hmm. The Apartment is more a New Year's movie. Yes. Yes. I definitely think of it that yeah. way. Yeah. But I don't know. I love It's a Wonderful Life. I mean, it. it's such a moving story i mean we forget that it's really a pretty dark story because i think we've seen it so many times we know all the beats we know what's happening or at least i have and uh but i mean he's gonna kill himself it's a dark story yes definitely i admit that's one of the ones where i like the film but i sort of question its placement on the list where Donna Reed and James Stewart are adorable together, but I don't think of it primarily as a romance. I feel like their relationship is one facet of an overarching Mm -hmm. story that's more about the emotional journey that his character goes on. Yeah. And so it's definitely a better choice than some of the other picks that they made, but it definitely didn't seem fully applicable to me where you also have something like King Kong, where I understand that you're meant to think that there's a sort of romantic element to Kong's fascination with this woman. I still don't think of it as a romance. I agree. I think of more of as a friendship with King Kong than a romance. Mm. Yeah, I agree. Uh, some others that I love, I, you know, I love Princess Bride. I was happy to see that on here. I think that's a really fun movie. I love Notorious and that's, I think, kind of underrated. I, it's builds up tension so well. They have, everybody has such chemistry and uh, the ending when he's trying to kind of keep her awake by kissing her. <laughs> it's so good. Uh-huh. Yeah, that one. Uh, I feel like you don't hear it as often talked about as one of the great Hitchcocks, but in my opinion, it's it's a, it's one of his best. Oh, I must confess, I suppose my slight aversion to Hitchcock in oh, yeah. general. I know he's meant to be the master of suspense <laughs> and the greatest film director of all time. There are just little quirks that he has that always get on my nerves, the fact that his films and so, so, so the fact that they're aggressively plot-based and you just jump from one scene to another uh-huh. without any focus on 
the emotional impact that certain events would have on characters. And I have to admit that Notorious is one of those classics where I just don't get it. Uh And this will make a lot of enemies. But (laughs) I will also confess at this point in the programme that I am not a Cary Grant. Which is a very controversial opinion for (laughs) a classic film lover. He's in everything. I've seen almost 30 of his films, I think, at this point. And I just don't get the appeal maybe it's that thing that a lot of people love where it's a slightly cold emotionally reserved British mm-hmm. person that is <laughs> well, not attractive to me personally even, well see I would not have to catch a thief on here I mean it is it's probably well it's probably Hitchcock's most romantic movie so I can see why it's on there it's very romantic um but I mean, maybe next to Rebecca, I think those are probably his two most romantic movies, which Rebecca's not on here. Uh, but uh, I I don't know. I just, it's low tier, lower tier Hitchcock for me. Another one that I don't love is uh, The Graduate. I, I know it's a really important movie, uh, but I don't know. I just feel like the movie doesn't realize that the most interesting character is Mrs. Robinson. The, the Dustin Hoffman character is just so bland and I don't, I could care less about him and his romance and his story. And when they're running off at the end and we're supposed to like, I don't know what we're supposed to think if they're going to be together or not, if this relationship's going to work, I doubt it. Um, I mean, it's very well made and well acted. I get that, but I don't think it's that great. I think that film, so the first time I saw it, I was bowled over by it. And I thought it was a masterpiece. And I do think even at the beginning, I realized, oh, no, Benjamin is definitely not a hero. There is something wrong with his approach to dating Elaine. And he definitely seems very empty at the end of the film. And this is not a victorious moment. But seeing it again years later, I did revise my opinion on it where I don't think it's a masterpiece. I think it has a lot of flaws. There are very memorable sequences. I do think that Mike Nichols's direction borrows from the French New Wave in a way that doesn't feel... Mm. It doesn't feel overly pretentious. It doesn't feel like the film is positioning itself as an art house picture. It's still very self-consciously an American comedy. Yeah. And yet my issues with the film largely arise, as you pointed out, during the second half of the film where Mrs. Robinson disappears and she is by far the most magnetic yeah. character in the entire film. You cannot take your eyes off of yeah. Anne Bancroft when she's on screen. She's phenomenally beautiful but she's also just so authoritative as a screen presence. And I think she plays off against Dustin Hoffman's funny blandness, I would argue, during the seduction scene, for example, where I think his quality as this nebbishy, shrinking violet works well during those opening scenes. When he becomes the focal point 
of the film during those later scenes and you're following him chasing Elaine around her university the film becomes so much less interesting yeah and I happen to think that Elaine May's The Heartbreak Kid which came out five years later is a fascinating response to the film where I think that movie is more caustic in a lot of ways and has a far darker ending and also has a lot to say about what it meant to be a part of the Jewish diaspora in America in the 1960s, well, in the 70s in that film's case, but let's say mid-century America. And I don't think that The Graduate is as tough as a film. I do think that it sounds off some of those rough edges. And while it has this ambiguous ending, you could say, I still take issue with the fact that the character of Elaine is just such a nothing of a human being. And I know that people argue, oh, that's deliberate. She's this woman that he wants to project all of his fantasies and desires onto. I don't necessarily agree with that. I think it's still possible to create an empty, emotionally shallow character who doesn't bore you to death whenever they're on screen. Yeah, I I agree. I agree. I mean, it seems like they want us to believe that it's a happy ending, the ending with them running uh, running away. I don't, I, I think there's but, meant to be this deliberate sense of, oh, mm-hmm. childhood has ended for the two of them. And after mm-hmm. all of this youthful promise has worn off, they are faced with the consequences of the decisions that they have made and they are now entering into adulthood and then I think people sort of extrapolate further and oh is it about the death of hippie ideals Mm -hmm. in America and this slight turn towards conservatism that you had in the 70s. -hmm. Were you surprised that Harold and Maude made the list? Ah yes. Kind of a cult classic. Choice and obviously I think that movie might be received a bit differently today in terms of the age gap in that relationship. I haven't seen it in years, as since high school. So it's, uh, it'll be interesting to revisit it. I mean, it's so bizarre. It's such a strange movie, but I guess that's kind of part of the appeal. Mm. Yes. Mm -hmm. I when one of my favorites on the list is What's Up, Doc. I just love that movie. It's so funny. Uh, and it's, uh, everybody has really great chemistry and just delivers the humor so well, I think. Barbara Streisand's finest mm-hmm. film. Yeah, and Madeline Kahn in that movie. Oh my gosh, she's oh, so yeah. funny. Yeah. <laughs> um, I love Brexit Tiffany's. I understand it has its flaws, but I still love it. I love that it's about these two flawed characters who find each other. I think it is a very passionate movie. I love Moon River. Uh, it is a very Audrey Hepburn heavy list. I have two for the road. You have Roman Holiday, which I love and adore. Um, uh, Sabrina, which I I actually like the remake of Sabrina better than this original one because I just don't think that 
uh, Humphrey Bogart was invested in this movie, it, there is no chemistry in my opinion. <laughs> yeah. yeah, between him and Audrey Hepburn. I mean, the age da- age gap, and uh, but it's a beautiful looking movie. Uh, but I actually like the the remake a little bit better. Uh, but yeah, a lot of Audrey Hepburn love in a in this <laughs> list. Yes. <laughs> I, I think it just makes sense. She did work a lot in the genre, but I also think, like a, a Grace Kelly, for example, uh-huh. I think her image had endured far longer than some of the other stars from the period. So I have my suspicions about who actually voted on this list, and I suspect that a lot of the voters hadn't actually seen that many films and yeah. just sort of went off of ooh I recognize the title this of one's that famous one. yes yeah would you have picked woman of the year for your uh Spencer no, Tracy Catherine Hepburn one? Oh, gosh so Spencer Tracy sorry this is just me revealing all of my pet peeves but <laughs> I despise him as oh, an okay. I just find him to be insufferable as an on-screen presence and I've always felt that Catherine Hepburn's 1940s filmography suffered as a result of the fact that they made so many romantic comedies together in that period and I hate the fact (laughs) that almost all of those films have this sexist message baked into them where she eventually has to acknowledge that she was wrong to put her career ahead of everything else and mm-hmm. actually what she really wants is just to be a wife and yeah, I just find it so dispiriting yeah I I agree I think especially Adam's rib I think is especially that way and that uh but I I think I would have gone with desk set I love desk set I think that's a really fun movie and I actually I think they have really good chemistry but I can see what you're saying too he is kind of a uh, uh, a little bit of a misog- you know, there's a little misogyny in there you know that yeah. you, you probably wouldn't see today uh, mm-hmm. but yeah they have that and they have guests who's coming to dinner um, with Hepburn and, and uh, Spencer Tracy um, we'd like to take a second and thank our sponsor for this episode of the podcast it's the Hallmarkies March store are you looking for that perfect gift for the postable hardy or Hallmarky in your life What about getting that t-shirt or hoodie that will help you stand out at your next holiday party? Now is the time to check out the Hallmarkies merch store. Full of festive designs by artists like Jessica Miller, Carrie from Hallmark Comics, and more. You can even have more than just shirts, but totes, cell phone cases, notebooks, mugs, and more. And it isn't just Hallmark. We have designs for Anna Green Gables, Man from Snowy River, The Nanny, and more. Every purchase at the merch store goes to help support the podcast and allows us to make the great content you know and love. There are frequent sales, so go to tpublic.com slash stores slash Hallmarkies or see the link in the description. That's tpublic.com slash stores slash Hallmarkies. Another one that I love, we mentioned a couple times, is The Apartment. I think that is such a great movie. Uh, I mean, I think it's actually more of a movie about work and kind of... (laughs) and in you know, how much will we let our integrity get chipped away at bit by bit until he finally gets to that point where he can't do it anymore. Uh, 
and uh, I love the script. I love how it's filmed. I love that in- initial scene when you uh, when you're coming in and you see just the the desks, the rows and rows of desks, and the the um, uh, adding machines. And uh, as someone who just I just I hated working in that kind of office environment. <laughs> that uh, <laughs> I can understand why he does what he does because when it first starts, it feels harmless. Like he's not doing anything wrong he's not you know sleeping with people's uh wives he's just letting people use his apartment but uh, as it gets more and more personal with Shirley McLean's character uh and it, it he starts to make more and more sort of sacrifices to his integrity like I said but Fred McMurray he's such a villain yes in the apartment he's so bad yes um <clears throat> yeah there's excuse me <clears throat> there's not very many period pieces uh like i said they do have sense of sensibility which i love uh, i love kate winslet in that movie she's so good and mm-hmm. i love at the end when emma thompson uh when Hugh Grant comes back, which he's probably kind of miscast in the role, but whatever. Um, <laughs> he comes back and she just ugly cries it. And I feel like you rarely see like a realistic cry, like how people actually cry. And she's like, <laughs> <laughs> I love that. It's so good. Um, what do you think about them having Grease on there? Oh, so I love Grease. I know mm-hmm. it's become very fashionable to suggest that oh it's not a good movie and people only like it because of the nostalgia I think it's wonderful mm-hmm. yes there is a bit of uh, rose-tinted glasses going on where I did watch it a fair amount as a child but I think watching it back as an adult now I really think that it has aged well I mm-hmm. think that in particular Stockard Channing's performance is just mm-hmm. marvelous. And I think the film really deserves credit for offering up a fairly complex characterization in mm-hmm. her case, where I think Rizzo is really interesting as this yeah. strong, independent woman who wants to have casual sex with a variety of different men and is living in the 50s and even though these uh, high school boys are willing to sleep with her they are incredibly cruel about her behind her back and because of the social mores of the day they're able to get away with mocking her and attacking her Mm -hmm. for doing something that's perfectly healthy and natural right and so i'm sort of impressed by the fact that even our mean villain who is uh, not very nice to the virginal pure blonde girl at Uh the center of the story is this complex character and i think the film deserves a lot of credit for depicting female friendship in Mm -hmm. a really compassionate light yeah, it's interesting. I feel like both Dirty Dancing and Grease are both films that are kind of dismissed as being sort of light and fluffy movies. But when you actually look at the stories, there's a lot going on there. I mean, Dirty Dancing, you've got an abortion that happens. Yeah. And I mean, you've got some pretty tough themes that 
that, I mean, I think that Dirty Dancing is more of a coming of age story. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's obviously a romance, of course, but it's also (laughs) a coming of age story uh, with baby coming into her, uh, becoming a woman of the course of this whole experience. I mean, I don't love the ending of Greece that she, you know, kind of changes (laughs) for her man, but they also make sure to say in that, cause I actually just recently saw the play and I, I've just recently watched the movie. Uh, they also make sure to say that she's not feeling confident. She's not feeling, uh, it would be one thing if she was kind of confident in her choices, you know, and, and it's totally a valid choice, of course, but she's not feeling that way. She's feeling insecure. And mm-hmm. so her putting on the tight, you know, outfit and the, is actually her trying to be more confident. Uh, but, mm-hmm. you know, I, I, I don't really love that, you know, that she feels she has to kind of change to win her man. But, um, but I think there's a little more nuance to it than sometimes given credit. Yes. And I did appreciate the fact that the message isn't, oh, she's going to redeem him, which I think is yeah. the very creepy aspect of a lot of stories that come from this very conservative worldview in which oh men are allowed to be naughty boys and they're allowed to sleep around before they mm-hmm. get married because he's changed out. for her and, at the end as yes. well and it's wearing the letterman's it's the, jacket and, yeah it's yeah. the job of this sort of virginal young woman to purify and cleanse her new husband mm-hmm. in a sense and that's just ugh, icky right. to me especially because it comes with this sense that oh well the woman that he slept with before she's a start that's horrific to me and I think it, there was something vaguely empowering about the fact that the film suggests that oh no Sandy is allowed to show off her sexy side if she wants to and she doesn't just have to be his nice little housewife but I I would agree obviously it would have been better if there weren't this sense that oh she has to adjust her entire personality right Um, so I've already done the write-up for Jerry Maguire and uh, I think that this that it holds up very well yes i really enjoyed it and i think that whole movie though could be seen as not a romantic film it's about these two people who really shouldn't be together who rush into a marriage for a variety of reasons and i'll admit at the end of the film i'm still not entirely convinced that he is prepared to be in a committed relationship considering Mm -hmm. the fact that he is so devoted to his job and spends so much time on it and seemingly isn't ready to handle the responsibility of raising a child but I do love I think even seen that way as this drama about a man trying to balance personal and professional responsibilities Mm -hmm. I think the movie is very fair to mm-hmm. Renee Zellweger's character, it never mocks her desire to have a man and to, to want to start right. a family. And I think she's fantastic in the role. And I do love the fact that so many of these scenes, you see how she could misinterpret something that he does sort of bashfully 
or uncomfortably like hugging her son and spending time yeah. with him well well in that bond when he just loves that little boy so much yes i mean it's very sweet and uh by the end they're you know they're a family which is 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 really cute and it, it and i also think the side romance with regina um king and um uh, yes. and cuba getting jr is really good too in that as a yes as a supportive marriage couple mm-hmm. that was fun to see right? i definitely think it sort of comes out of nowhere because obviously the cuba gooding jr character is introduced as this loose cannon so you don't expect him to be a very happily married man mm-hmm. right yeah no that's true uh, I personally, I would have picked one of the John Hughes music, not musicals. I would have personally picked one of the John Hughes romances over Working Girl. I don't think that's that great. That was interesting to me that none of those John Hughes movies uh, made it in. Where yeah. I was thinking, I know that Sixteen Candles cops a lot of flack for the fact that Jake Ryan is too perfect in a sense mm-hmm. where they allow him to be the handsomest kid in the school and he's athletic and he gets good grades and he's nice to the unpopular kids where you think surely he should have more flaws so i was thinking maybe pretty and pink is the the more yeah thematically complex john hughes film mm-hmm. where the james spader character is obviously this interesting obstacle in the way of their relationship and the andrew mccarthy character is allowed Mm -hmm. to be really vulnerable and he is guilty of this classism and he's really emotionally fragile in a way that male protagonists didn't often get to be in these 1980s movies yeah yeah it's true so some of the other ones that i love uh, on this list i love the philadelphia story i think that's great I love Sound of Music. I love oh. Moonstruck. Uh, and I said, you know, Roman Holiday. I love that too. Oh, yes. Moonstruck, just wonderful and such a great showcase for the talents of Nicolas Cage. I yeah. would say that's yeah. probably one of the best male leading performances on the list. I love the fact that that character has so much personality. I think one of the concerns with some of these romantic movies, especially targeted towards women, is that the male lead is just going to be this bland honk with no personality and nothing going on behind his eyes. And I think part of the excitement of Moonstruck is that Loretta is obviously this big personality, but she is matched by this person who is equally quirky and eccentric. One, especially if you're talking passion. I mean, it's such Ooh, a passionate yes, movie. Yes. So His good. Speech is, oh, yeah, I divine. love it so much. Uh, and of course, we have our number one film on the list is Casablanca. And uh, it's, it's, it's a movie that you were saying about a movie that could be released today, like a one ha- happened one night. And I think that uh, this is another one that it's, it, I think it really holds up well. Casablanca. I'm a little bit less enthusiastic about this film than some other mm-hmm. people are, just because I 
perhaps I didn't see it at a formative age. I think I saw it too late. I had already consumed a lot of other classic films from this Uh period. And so I think seeing Casablanca, it couldn't help but be bit of a letdown Mm. where I had heard all of these great things about it and I think if it had been my first introduction to the cinema of the 40s it would have been a bigger moment for me yeah I mean I kind of I felt a little bit that way with Dr. Zhivago to be honest like I I respected (laughs) it it's beautifully made it's so slow though it's so long I do not think that Dr. Zhivago is a good film. I think it's a lot of... It's very melodramatic. Like a Fantastic opera. technical filmmaking in yeah. service of a story that never comes alive. And it's based on this novel that really has a lot of things to say mm-hmm. about the impact that the Russian Revolution had on ordinary civilians. And mm-hmm. I think the movie jettisons all that in favor of getting pretty images of yeah. a frosty Long, movie. pretty images. Yes. And so it does look fantastic. I can't mm. see why you would single it out for praise for its yeah. score or the cinematography. But I, you cannot convince me that the affair between Laura and Givago was just heart-stoppingly beautiful. Yeah, because, I one, I don't think that Julie Christie and Omar Sharif have any chemistry. Yeah. And I also think that the script sheds those characters of everything that would have made their affair fascinating. And all of the elements of the film that would have made the affair sort of dangerous and difficult for them to continue are Mm. also removed, where his wife, who's trying to raise all of their children, is oddly just fine with the fact that her husband disappears (laughs) months on end to be with this other woman. Mm -hmm. And I guess, sorry, I'm not being a a fire and brimstone, adulterers deserve to burn in hell forever person. But it just seems really odd that she just sort of smiles and waves and is okay with it. Where I would have thought the whole point of having a wife character there would be so that you have this obstacle to them being together mm-hmm. and the movie doesn't really do anything with her and you have Geraldine Chaplin this fantastic actress playing the role and I feel like it really just serves as a representative of all of the other problems with the narrative where you got these great pieces in place and then they never advance they never do anything. And the film begins and you think, wow, it's this gripping melodrama. It's going to say yeah. something about how loyalty has shifted during this tumultuous period in history. And these two flawed people just tried to conduct this clandestine affair. And yet it never really develops into that. It's mostly just, wow, Julie Christie looks fantastic in that red dress. And... <laughs> trust me yeah it's definitely not the best showcase for her talents and the fact that she was so wonderful in darling the same year just reminds you that i don't think david green was getting the most out of Mm -hmm. his car yeah yeah 
All right. Well, thank you so much for coming and talking about this list. Uh, and uh, I'm really excited about this project. So if you want to, if you're listening and you want to uh, to read my thoughts on these, more of my thoughts on these movies, then sign up for the Patreon at any level. Uh, you can uh, have access to the writing and uh, I think you'll enjoy it. So check it out. I'll have all the information in the description and, uh, and uh, where can people find you on social media and also your podcast? So I'm on Twitter at Zeta underscore short. The podcast is at 300 passions and it can be found on most podcast hosting platforms like Anchor, Cast, Fox, etc. Great. I'll have all that information in the description. So definitely check it out. Thank you so much for, for doing this. I really appreciate it, especially being uh, you're all the way over there in New Zealand. So I appreciate <laughs> it very much. Uh, and uh, you can find me at Rachel's Reviews, all over social media, iTunes, YouTube, and on Rotten Tomatoes to check that out. Also make sure you're following the podcast, Hallmarkies Pod, and Hallmarkies Podcast, all over social media. And if you are listing on iTunes, please leave your ratings and reviews. That helps us so much. And if you are listing on YouTube, please give the video a thumbs up and subscribe to the channel. We appreciate that so much. We also have our, like I said, the patron group and merch store. So take a look at that. And uh, thanks again. And uh, yeah, we'll have so much fun watching all these movies. It's going to be great. Yes. <laughs> Bye, everyone. <laughs>